Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Rod Stryker, also known as Yoga Rupa. Rod is widely considered one of the West's leading authorities on yoga, tantra, and meditation. He has taught for more than 35 years, is the founder of Para Yoga, and author of The Four Desires, Creating a Life of Purpose, Happiness, Prosperity, and Freedom. Rod has contributed to countless wellness publications and recently launched one of the most comprehensive online yoga teacher trainings in the world. At the forefront of integrating ancient yogic wisdom into a broad array of modern-day applications, he is a thought leader and mentor to thousands of para-yoga practitioners and hundreds of teachers throughout the world. Rod lives in Colorado with his wife and his four children. So hello, Rod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jacob. It's a real pleasure to have you today. I've been really enjoying preparing for this interview, reading some of your writings from Huffington Post and also watching some of your videos online. And, uh, and so I, I'm really excited to kind of explore some of the things that, that inspired me when I, was, when I was reading and watching you. So, But first, before we get started, I'd love to just hear about your story. And, and, and you've had a long, obviously, trajectory of your own practice. So I would love to hear about the story that kind of led you to yoga and maybe some of the key moments in your own uh, evolution of your practice? Well, that might take up our whole hour, but I, so I'll, <laughs> I'll try and keep it. I'll try and hit the highlights. All right, um, sounds good. I think what I think uh, the place to begin is pain. Mm. Uh, the very thing that brings most of us to these wisdom traditions. Right. Um, it, literally one of the more important scriptures of the tantric Hatha yoga tradition says, you know, for those who have been scorched by the three fires, which are physical pain, mental, emotional pain, and or spiritual pain. And, you know, I don't know, some combination of their, of, of, of those three probably were in play when at the age of 19, um, I, I discovered yoga. Uh, and it was not, I didn't know what I was looking for, to be honest with you. I just, um, someone suggested it. And um, I didn't have anything else at my disposal that I thought could address what I was feeling. And I did, did my first class by myself. I actually did it out of uh, Light on Yoga, and, uh, which was Iyengar's classic book of Hatha Yoga. Right. The third pose, I had, a, I had an epiphany, and I was experiencing something more expansive, more profound than, um, than in all my years of really of study of philosophy and psychology. I was a junior in college at the time and a, a philosophy major. And, uh, um, and, and even before doing those poses, I, I, I don't know what, what possessed me, but I did in fact read his introduction, which is a really, really quite extraordinary glimpse at a kind of very classical, but still profound, uh, purvey of the yoga tradition from really the, the Raja yoga tradition, we'll call it, where mm -hmm. The, the full feature of what yoga could be and, and is. And there's something on that first page that now, nearly 40 years later, it still sticks with me. And there was a moment he writes about, I think it's the second or third paragraph, and the term is, he introduces a term called yukta. Mm. And yukta, he describes as, um, in order to understand the universe, one must first interface with the universe within oneself. Mm -hmm. And when one does, then one understands and relates to the rest of the universe. And one who achieves that is a yukta. And that was a very compelling point, the idea that rather than trying to understand the universe by looking outward, I could possibly achieve it by looking inward, mm. I think stuck with me. Over the next nine months, I practiced um, pretty consistently because I had some profound experiences, um, very profound. 
Um, and uh, just in, in short, seeing that I was more than my body, experiencing uh, a kind of transcendent, uh, transcendent awareness, we'll say. And then um, uh, wind the tape forward. I, I was living in Denver. I left college in my, at, and in my junior year. I'd been doing yoga on my own for about nine months. I moved back to Los Angeles, which is where I grew up, mm. attended my first conducted yoga class, and there I practiced for almost two years kundalini yoga. Mm. Uh, so that was an interesting kind of interface because it began to really introduce me, introduce me to um, uh, yoga as a means to really quickly um, transform and move energy as such. Mm -hmm. And the quality or the effect of that, almost the, we could say it was an introduction to the science of spiritual experience through energy, skillful use of energy. Let's put it that way. And then, um, again, the, ne the next kind of hallmark point was meeting my first teacher as such. And I met Alan Finger and later his father, who became my guru, uh, Manny Finger. And Manny had studied with three extraordinary masters of the previous century. Uh, Shivananda was his last, it was his, um, actually Yogananda was his first teacher. Shivananda of Rishikesh was his second and then this tantric mystic, um, um, his name was Shudananda Bharti, who had been a tantric hermit. And he was this, uh, Manny became this, I would say, um, um, a funnel of these three streams of profound knowledge and teaching. And, and uh, I began then to really enter into uh, what is pretty unique in this day and age, which is, I would say, a discipleship. Uh, kind of under the tutelage of Manny for the most part, and then additional guidance from Alan. And uh, um, we'll wind the tape up uh, forward again about 17, 18 years later. Uh, Manny was nearing the end of his life, and, and uh, we had a moment, um, uh, a, a kind of meeting of our minds, and he gave me his blessing to find another teacher. He was now 97. And I began a two-year search and kind of looked high and low and even outside of the yoga tradition, to be honest with you. And, uh, and then I found Pandit Rajmani Tuganayat, who's the head of this Himalayan Institute, mm -hmm. successor to Swami Rama. And uh, it was almost upon, I shouldn't say when I first met him, because he was teaching in a very large group setting, I thought, nah, he's extremely knowledgeable, but he's not got the, the shakti, the power that I was accustomed to in my, in, in my experiences with Manny. But then we sat down, we had an occasion to be, one-on-one uh, -on -one for a little bit, and uh, I realized that I had spent 20 years preparing to meet him, wow. and uh, and that was 17, about 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the history, and uh, you know, there's a lot to fill in, but in a sense, uh, um, uh, it's been um, yeah. I'll I'll let you follow up from there. Yeah, no, I mean that's a beautiful story, and and um, and there's a couple questions that I have related to your story, um, and I'll ask sort of the maybe the lighter one first. Um, you know, you've ended up in, in, and this sort of came to me before I was before we got on the call today, um, just kind of randomly because uh, you know I live in New York City, you live in Colorado. These two places couldn't be any more different. And so when I'm seeing pictures of of you on your website meditating next to the mountains, I think about 
kind of the relationship between um, sadhana and the context uh, of where we live. And, and, you know, as of course we know, every space, every place has a certain shakti. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on how kind of location or place has, has contributed to your own experience of the practice, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you know, first, I think I should preface it by saying that I, I paid my dues. <laughs> I discharged my duty in Los Angeles for right. 40 years. Okay. We moved here about 14 years ago. Okay. And, um, you know, I do think you bring up an interesting point in as much as there are really two pulls that we have throughout our life. Um, and it's vital, I think, for everyone, anyone's well-being that we recognize that there are actually two, two areas uh, where we necessarily must investigate or must explore if we're ultimately going to realize the potential of who we are and why we're here. So number one is that duty thing and discharging duty and dharma and, and um, our responsibilities. Uh, I mean, cities are powerful places to do that. And certainly there's an array of opportunities to do it in yeah. cities. And I am, I am, I am thankful one that of my time in Los Angeles, of course, I'm also thankful I'm not in Los Angeles anymore, <laughs> <laughs> a lot. But, yeah. but I would say that, you know, it was a pretty dynamic place. And in a way, I think it, I could not be me uh, in the sense of who I am creatively and otherwise in, in terms of my, my life, my career, my family, if it wasn't for my time in Los Angeles, as well as even, I'm even going to credit some of my a lot of my expertise as a teacher comes from the the kind of incubational yeah. uh, cauldron that was L.A. Yeah. And, um, and being able to translate what I was learning and experiencing uh, in, in my yoga into, in, into a language that Los Angelinos could understand. Mm -hmm. And so that was really extraordinarily vital. I would say, you know, that – and I'm really glad I did it in the order I did it. Now I'm in the, you know, I think it's fair to admit I, I've entered in the latter half of my life and I'm glad I'm here. I wouldn't want to do it the other way around in essence, because that, that early interface and learning how to stand in front of people and, 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 uh, people who, who may not necessarily understand the value of these teachings and be able to articulate it to them and excite them and, and 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 interest them and inspire them to move into the into these teachings and practices. Um, that that really was uh, not an, not an invaluable time mm -hmm. in my time in L.A. You know, Jacob, the question of sadhana. I said something in a recent seminar to some of my more advanced students, and I said, and I think and I'll mention it in this context because a lot of them said afterwards that it was very meaningful to hear it. And, and, you know, as it relates to you living in Los Angeles, in New York, for example, and feeling maybe somewhat uh, a little more constrained in terms of your sadhana and maybe the effects of the environment, I said, look, you know, the fact is that rather than trying, rather than, um, uh, um, judging the fact that we can't always be doing the ideal amount of practice uh, if we're in our, if we're in city life and the impact, for instance, of maybe the, the, the distractions in a city on our practice, what I said is, look, the tradition is not saying you need to practice three to four hours every day mm -hmm. necessarily. I mean, that would be wonderful. But what the tradition says is that you take one or two, um, uh, uh, inter uh periods of the year 
to do extremely intense practice. Mm. And then the samskara, the impression that that makes, stays with you for the rest of the year. Mm. And so um, what I would say is for people who are still discharging their duties and living in, in a city and, and feeling the pull of the world away from the pull of their souls, for example, um, that at least twice a year you do something that's, that really is dedicated to deepening your practice in a significant way. And especially if it's twice a year, it has longevity in life um, and supports you then when you're going when you're doing the work in the world, so to speak. I see. So that's really useful. So let's go a little bit deeper into that. So two two times a year. Now, are you talking about something like a retreat setting where you would you would go away and meditate? You know, do your practice mm-hmm. very intensively. Mm-hmm. Is that is that something that you would you think you would suggest leaving the city for for people that are living in you know major cities where there are such things as you know speed and distraction? Yeah. Um, and- yeah, you mm-hmm. would. Okay. And then I would say, yes, if you can do something, I mean, that's the ideal scenario, get away because it's not to say that you can't do an intense practice at home. It's just that you have so many associations to the worldly pulls around you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a lead retreat, depending on your level of self-discipline, right, right. just, just disappearing and loosening your connections to the internet and, uh, and, uh, texting and the rest. Ideally, you have bad cell reception wherever you're going to go do that kind of practice. Mm. Well, and, and I know this is kind of detailed, and, and um, but I think maybe it's useful for those who haven't heard this suggestion before. But are you suggesting something like a week or 10 days? Is a long weekend enough? Um, I would say a week minimum, okay. a week to 10 days. Now, again, just to again create, if we're going to make that prescription for people, understand that if you do a I mean, if you do a 10-day practice at home, that instead of meditating for 20 minutes, you push it to an hour. Yeah. Um, or you give yourself 30 days or ideally, and now neuroscience is really behind this old idea of sadhana is a 40-day thing. Mm. Um, neuroscience is saying that it takes about 40 days to uh, establish new neural pathways. Mm. Um, so the old the old practice is 40 days, but imagine now twice a year not leaving the city, but go ahead and say, okay, so instead of what I've been squeezing, right. what, I've been, what I've been managing to do as a personal practice is I take 20 minutes to half an hour. I would say that's probably, you know, we, we fall into a pattern of doing just enough to ameliorate the pressures of our life, yeah. to take care of our stressors, but we're not actually deepening our life as a seeker. Mm-hmm. And so... You say, okay, for 40 days, I'm going to do an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 10 minutes or the first 10 days. It's a graduated practice and you build up to an hour and a half or two hours of meditation. Um, uh, I think it's, I think that's the way to do it. So minimum a week, ideally 40 days, but if you're leaving for 40 days, few of us can afford the time off that much. So at least if you're away for a week to 10 days, but if you can manage a 40 day practice, twice a year, it will have a profound residual effect for the rest of the year. Wow. And then just one last question on this. Are there two, are there ideal times of year where this makes sense? Um, You know, I don't know, astrologically or in terms of Ayurveda principles that, that you would suggest, or is it kind of whatever works for you? I would say there are, I would say there's two answers. There's, um, there's an ideal time and a second best or ideal time. First is, 
pre-spring is really uh, ideal and pre and round fall, uh, early fall would be ideal uh, if you could manage twice a year. Um, those are profound times of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, I would also then offer the second best time is any time you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So that's great. I, I just thought I wanted to ask some questions on that because I think that's it. We haven't talked about kind of the practical side of doing something, incorporating something like that into your Saturn. And I think it would be really useful for people yeah. that maybe haven't heard that before. Sure. Um, so then the other, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about, and this is actually something that, um, that I had uh, really been inspired by in one of your talks that you did, I believe it was for the one, one of Wanderlust speakeasies. And mm. you talk about tradition and, um, and, you know, as, many of us will not be surprised to hear tradition generally has become, um, not as, as, as fundamental to people's practice as perhaps it was. Um, and, 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 and even, and even there might, we might even say there's been a kind of, um, negative, uh, association with tradition in some way by all of the recent events, especially as it relates to certain kind of um, guru abuses or things that that tend to make tradition look, I don't know, backward or hierarchical or whatever you know negative connotation yeah. people have been play, um, have been um, associating it with. But you go into a really interesting conversation about how. Um, you know, we have all of these in, in almost any, um, domain of expertise in our lives, there's a, you know, tradition of cumulative knowledge that informs Mm -hmm. what we do. And, and Mm -hmm. we, and then with spirituality, it's sort of like, oh, you know, anything that your little heart desires, that kind of salad bar spirituality effect. So I wanted to kind of go deep into this and talk about why this is so significant and why, um, and why tradition is, is, or, you know, maybe start with kind of a cultural diagnosis, why you think it's becoming less, people are becoming less interested in it. And then if you want to move into what it could do for us as we kind of maybe find a new way to appropriate tradition in our practice. Well, this is a big one, but it it is one of my favorites. Um, and, and at the same time, I also understand going into it that there is a lot of, let's say, prejudgment one way or the other. I think maybe in that talk, I even mentioned, look, you know, for people who've been exposed to the light of tradition and had a meaningful and helpful experiences of it, it, it's, it's invaluable. Right. As, and at the same time, I mean, our perception of it is and our association to it is at the same time, you make the case, easily make the case that people say, look, I, I've gotten stuff out of yoga or I've gotten stuff out of meditation and I've never been part of a tradition. I don't need a tradition. So there's a lot of kind of, um, a, a lot of us are preloaded for a judgment, uh, based on our, our experience about it. And I don't know that we'll convince anyone otherwise, but I, you've already made a bit of the case around the fact that there is nothing in our society that isn't, uh, built off of previous knowledge. And, you know, you and I are communicating via technology that, you know, is, I mean, the, the technology that we so, we take for granted, um, um, uh, whether it's our phones or our iPhone, uh, whether it's our phones or our computers, et cetera, is all built on generations and generations of development and science. I'm always, I'm always um, a little, uh, I, I'm, real, I'm really cynical of people who deny the idea of science as accumulated knowledge and, and the idea that 99% of the scientists in the world, for example, have a feeling about climate change and you have 
a lot of politicians who are on the other hand saying, no, 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 there is no such thing and all these scientists are wrong. And I said, well, why don't you, you may be right, but if you're right, would you be willing to give up everything else these scientists have developed, mm -hmm. i.e. your phone, i.e. electricity, you know, harnessing electricity, lights. Um, and, and at that point, you know, the argument would be mute. But I'll, I'll, I'll stay away from partisanship and I'll just <laughs> sweep back here into your question. I think, number one, um, there's an understandable kind of kickback. But, but I think before we actually I make the case to defend it or, you know, suggest people get a little softer around those boundaries around tradition, uh, I do think just taking the big picture view that in the West, there really is no, no – there's very little modeling that even can parallel – uh, the, 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 the relationship to teacher or nor tradition. Mm -hmm. In other words, a hundred years ago, at least in the modern day, that's the case. So a hundred years ago, the idea that you, you were, um, you had a mentee, if you were a blacksmith, you, exp you, you didn't just go to, um, you didn't just go to a trade school, you interfaced with a blacksmith, someone who had done it for 20, 30, 50, 60 years, and whose whole life is, integrated to being a blacksmith or a carpenter or so there's very little of that kind of mentorship in our lives anymore mm -hmm. and and i think that that is part of why there's kind of a lack of reference to that point uh people have made the case this is a part of the challenge around um like inner city youths that they don't have role models in essence to 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 kind of look look ahead to their life as to what it could be where we see and experience something that's highly functional that gives us meaning and purpose in our life that gives us a sense of direction and a sense of embodiment uh and integration and so you know the the ancient model of mentorship was you actually spent time with the mentor you saw him with his family you saw him or her whatever the case may be you saw them interact both with the craft and the world. And, and if I can, you know, just step back for a moment, I will tell you that um, having met my first guru, my first teacher at the age of 20, I, my eyes were open wide as a student. I was a front row kind of student. But at the same time, I watched closely and learned about how he was a grandfather, how he parented, how he lived away from teaching. And he taught me, in essence, as much about life and myself, not uh, not in the context of this, you know, of a teaching about philosophy. I saw, to quote a to quote a term, embodied philosophy. Mm -hmm. And um, if I can plug you, if that's all right. <laughs> um, and but it was really significant, you know. Uh, um, so so I can I really want to make the case for that. The second thing I want to say is that I find in the West because we don't have necessarily. Mo modeling around mentorship, what happens is the pendulum has a tendency to swing to the extremes in the West, which is that we are either wildly independent and resist uh, resist learning, resist kind of um, sublimating our own will and watching someone grow, watching someone who has grown who has who, who's grown be beyond our current station in life, whether that's intellectually, emotionally, psychologically. And we want to do it ourselves. We are this kind of do-it-yourself culture, highly independent. I can do it. I'm, you know, it's, we celebrate individuality. And at the same time, the pendulum has a tendency to swing radically the other way, which is 
um, a radical codependence, a radical dependence, where we lose our sense of individuality and uh, completely submit to this authority figure. There really isn't a kind of middle ground that exists where these traditions actually have survived for millennium. Now, it's not to say that in India, for instance, you go to many parts of India, or that there are not popular yogis or yoga or spiritual celebrities in India who get the kind of blind devotion um, from Indian from Indians. Um, that does exist. Mm-hmm. But if one is one exercises some discernment, you see in India and the East in general, you see a celebration of individuality and self-reliance in the midst of deep respect and reverence for those who embody wisdom and not just the light of wisdom that we find in the formal teachings, but the light of wisdom of living those teachings over decades in one's lifetime. And that's what I think makes it harder for Westerners, Americans, if you will, to um, to kind of find what that middle line is between self-reliance and at the same time feeling the feeling served by something that has been time-tested, knowledge-based tradition embodied through an individual. Do you think that has something to do with kind of the the boundary being blurred or 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 the kind of i don't know um i'm i'm the word is escaping me but the the mixture the mixture of or the influence of our own kind of judeo-christian background on our perception of our experience in these traditions like do you think that's part of the reason why because there there's something within the judeo-christian tradition that might ask for a kind of self, uh, self, self-subservience that then gets translated unconsciously into our experience? I, I, don't think, I don't think it's wrong to offer that as part of what's part of the dynamic of what we're talking about, what the challenges are. But I'm going to make, I'm going to change the, the direction of, of your question and answer it differently. And I think, okay. I think in part what it really has to do with the fact that there's a fundamental misunderstanding uh, around the idea of what these teachings reveal mm-hmm. at the end. You know, mm. the realization of the promise of so many of these teachings, um, we, we all have some general assumptions about them, and fundamentally, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so what that means is that if we have a fundamental uh, assumption about where, we're go- where it can go— I think what unfolds from that is that people assume, because they have this understanding where they can go, that they can get there themselves. Yeah. And that's the mistake. So, uh, and again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if what I'm saying starts to kind of creates resistance or a, a, li- a little dissonance in people who might be listening to it. That's my favorite kind of conversation. So okay, <laughs> great. But here's the piece that I think is critical, and that is that fundamentally— where these end, or where these teachings, uh, like the culmination of the realis- and realization of the end of what these teachings are, is where each of us disappears. Mm. In other words, everything that we know about ourselves has to be has to literally be demolished mm. in order to get to the end of, uh, in, in order to get to that rich, profound, sublime terrain that is the realization of these teachings. Right. Which Therefore, is a, 
Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was wanna... just going to say, well, that I mean, and that's would be profoundly challenging for people in a culture that is saying that the the very center of your being is your own egoic identity. It's like exactly. every every cultural condition that we have is is telling us to to find ourself as a kind of you know nomadic um, mm-hmm. separate self that has all of these different qualities that are uniquely um, different from yours and and so on and so forth. So it, it's 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 what you're offering what the what the tradition is is offering is is profoundly frightening for people it it would seem it's that and then it's also understanding that someone needs to lead you Mm -hmm. or some something needs to lead you to this place where you intellectually emotionally psychologically can't get to right um and now, if I have, if I, again, just to kind of circle back, so we were really being clear, if I, if I assume that I can get there by myself and it's really just a trade off of, oh, I might have, I might, I, I can get there by myself or I can get there by myself with some help from somebody, then I'd rather just get there by myself, you know, for all the reasons you mentioned, all of the, you know, uh, bad examples of teachers that have come along and there's countless versions of it. Yeah. Um, but what I'm suggesting is you can't get there by yourself mm-hmm. because you can't lead yourself someplace you've never gone before. Yeah. And now, but if I have the assumption I can get there, I opt for going there by myself. Um, and it, it's, it's not to say there haven't been individuals in the history, in history that have gotten there by themselves. There have been, but here's the case I want to make and why it becomes even more relevant in this day and age. And that is that, those that did, so, you know, I, who knows about Christ's lost years and what happened between 16 and 36 and did he have a guru? Did he get to India? Uh, let's, I'm not even, I don't even want to speculate on that one, but we yeah. do have a few examples. Uh, Ramana Maharishi, for example, is one that people often like to cite as kind of achieving enlightenment at a very young age. But just so everyone knows, this wasn't like he wasn't reading the newspaper. Or he didn't take a little afternoon walk and then ask, you know, who am I? He literally try essentially took the position of dying for about seven to nine months and continued to ask himself. He disappeared. Parents couldn't find him. He was hiding under. He was hiding unseen for months, posing this question to himself. And so I think the challenge that most of us face in this day and age is that there is so fundamentally our mental capacities have become weakened, our memory, and the traditions are very clear that memory plays a vital part in enlightenment. In other words, every stage of unfoldment has to be deeply retained in order for the next stage to be awakened. Mm. So imagine now, most people don't remember four phone numbers, let alone the subtle states of consciousness that unfold in ever deepening stages of meditation. So our mental capacities have weakened. Our distraction levels are off, you know, off the charts. Yep. Um, and in general, there's this kind of de- like uh, fundamentally we're breaking down the fabric that needs to be intact for this experience of the whole self. And that has a lot to do with our modern ills and technology and the society as a whole. So I don't think there are many individuals who have the incredible amount of discipline it will take. Listen, Buddha, who had practiced it for a lifetime, 
you know, uh, and then he sits under the tree and says, I'm not leaving. Mm-hmm. Now, it took him 49 days. I'm not leaving till I attain it. Took him 49 days straight of practice. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned like, yeah, if you could squeeze in a week, twice a year, you know, uh, that would be great. And maybe you could do it for two hours a day. Well, he did it nine stop and it took him 49 days after years of preparation leading up to it. So all in all, what I'm suggesting is we need guidance. Now, and, and last thing I'll say is, uh, and, and I think I should also qualify first and simply say, I've heard all the bad stories. I know all the bad. I'm, I've been in this world for a long time, so I'm all too familiar with them. Yeah. But uh, I've never had the experience. Um, you know, to my, you know, my blessing and, and why I get to kind of be talking about this in the way I am today is that, you know, I've had two gurus and both have been incredibly moral, ethical, balanced, whole human beings, nothing on the side, no kind of Wizard of Oz scenario. And that is there one thing when they're teaching, they're another thing behind the curtain. And um, so I have my own prejudice around this. I've seen it. I've seen it in a functional way. I've been given that example. I try and embody it to the best of my ability to my students. So um, there's a last piece of here. And there's a last piece to this tradition thing. And that is this idea of, um, of, of, if you will, guru shakti or parampar shakti maybe is a better word, which is that something tangible, not material, but tangible and experiential truth gets passed from teacher to teacher Mm -hmm. and moving into the proximity of it. Um, again, within the confine, within, within the framework of someone being healthful and integrated and whole themselves and having the right, uh, uh, um, intentions, um, there is something in that environment that enriches the journey to this world that is not known by the mind, but is in fact the self, the truth. And that's that final piece, if you will. And there's some more things about tradition we could speak about, but there is something, there's a presence in that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I would say that is as real as having a teacher teach you, you know, ancient wisdom. And uh, so it comes alive there. Yeah. That, wow. There's so much rich things, so much richness that you've offered there. Um, and and I, I just want to ask one last question because I think we, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd made clear where we are going. Um, and then you mentioned before that that uh, many of the fundamental assumptions of where we were going are wrong. But uh, unless I miss it, I don't know if you if we actually said what those fundamental misconceptions are so i'm wondering if you if you have any thoughts on that like what what are the fundamental misassumptions about where we're going in you the, mean where we're, where we're going if we follow the the wisdom of the traditions yes uh, yeah because you said that you said that the fundamental assumptions are generally wrong so i'm wondering what those fundamental assumptions are well you know i mean i i, I um where i would begin would i would be to suggest first of all that we all that there's a general sense of where we can wind up is where where the promise of this tradition these traditions lead us is something more than stress release oh yeah for sure no so a lot of people go to yoga class for example and i know we're talking in a way it's a larger conversation than just yoga but a lot of people go to yoga class and right before the bell starts the class begins uh the bell rings the class starts uh, you know, we're texting and we're doing our worldly stuff. 
we, we do the class, whatever the class may be, we do the flow, we experience what we experience, we do some Shavasana, and right afterwards, we pick up our phone and we resume that conversation we were having right before. Now we feel a little more, more clear, maybe we feel a little more patient, maybe that night we sleep better, maybe the next day our, our back and neck and feel a little better than it did. Now, a lot of people's assumption is it doesn't get better than that. Right. That's it. It's just somehow a slightly improved ver- version of what it was before I did that practice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I would say that you know, now speaking in the yoga world, again, there's just, we're just misinformed. The, the, the expectation of what it can reveal if we dedicate ourselves to it is really low. We fundamentally set the bar so low. And, <laughs> and that, that because we don't have a more um, a, a grander sense of the possibility of what these revelations over time build us toward, we assume that's as good as it gets. Yeah. So why do I need a teacher? Why do I need someone who's steeped in tradition to get me there? I got there. Yeah. So again, that's a misguided sense of what the target, as it were, um, as it, as it were is. And then, you know, I mean, we can talk about, listen, one of the great sages of the yoga tradition and, uh, you know, perhaps the seminal sage was Patanjali. Mm-hmm. Patanjali writes this amazing treatise and somehow it gets subverted in the modern age in the West into like it's eight limbs. My God, you know, it, <laughs> that is such a minor t- minuscule piece in the totality of that body of knowledge. So one of the things that's really intriguing is that he talks about samadhi. So this state where that starts to unfold as the as our mind starts to become more quiet. Well, he doesn't talk about samadhi in a general way. He goes as far as to say there are nine stages of samadhi. Nine. Nine stages of samadhi. Yeah. Starting with bliss. So a lot of students assume that when they get mind gets quiet and they get a glimpse of bliss that they've reached the end. Right. Well, Patanjali tells us that's the beginning. Mm. Mm. So, it, it, you know, I mean, again, this could be a conversation just about all of the ways that, are, that we've been misinformed. Our expectations are far too low about what this means, about what the implications of following the, uh, like a systematic process guided by a knowledgeable teacher, where that leads us yeah. and what is possible. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that about um, uh, the kind of health and wellness appropriation of the of of the tradition. Uh-huh. Um, I've talked about that um, in another interview with uh, with another interviewee, and and I think it's really important because you're right to note that it's it's really. I mean, we've really anesthetized the tradition from its more radical aspect, and because maybe because people you know are made uncomfortable by that, and they associate it with religion, which people are uncomfortable with, blah blah blah. But in general, you know the end of the tradition has been kind of distorted uh, in most people's view to be, you know, has something to do with just getting less stressed and, and <laughs> reducing anxiety. And that's yeah. sort of the end of it. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. Sure. Um, so now I want to shift gears a little bit. That's been a really fascinating conversation. I'm so glad we went on so long about tradition. I think it's awesome. Um, and you wrote a book called The Four Desires. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about that. I, I first wanted to know just what your motivation was for writing the book. And then if you want to kind of go into what The Four Desires are. Well, the short version of it is um, uh, that a vital piece of the yoga tradition is this is this aspect of self-understanding. Uh, in in the yoga, you know, in lo- yoga language, 
svadhyaya, uh, so self-study, self-examination. And, and uh, we should understand that this is really ultimately a twofold process of one, having relationship to our higher self and beginning to study that, mm-hmm. um, having, having really beginning to be informed and learn from the very place we've kind of been talking around, which is who am I when my mind is still? Who, has, who am I when I become gender-free or genderless, uh, um, beyond race, beyond, beyond, uh, beyond sexual persuasion? Who, who is that? Who, who am I in the end? So number one is understanding the higher self, and number two is understanding the lower self. And, you know, honestly, I, uh, about 15 years ago when my book, when the work that would become the book began, I really found that on the one hand, uh, 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 I found yoga teachers and dedicated yoga students incredibly capable of entering into a place of stillness and calm. But wow, man, I saw some really unhappy people. Yeah, and and deeply unfulfilled creatively, or in light of relation their relationships or their career, and yet they could kind of do a bunch of poses, exhaust their nervous system to the point where they would then just be in bliss once again. And then kind of the pattern would repeat. And, you know, I would, I would see these conversations over the years because that, by that point I had been in yoga for 25 years or so. And I found one of the most depressing social experiences of my life were yoga potlucks. You know, the yoga potluck scene was it quickly moved away from anything about creativity, relational fulfillment, uh, you know, breaking out of uh, limited thinking, and it quickly became about poses or God knows what. <laughs> so I, I, I really began to ask some questions. I began to go, and my, my questioning began to lead me back to some fundamental things I'd learned early in my uh, discipleship, in my, in my studies around the soul and the the soul having two aspects. You know, there's this, one of the most controversial things at least 5, 10, 20 years ago, and probably today among serious yoga students that you can bring up is this question of desire. Mm, And, and, you know, some contemplative and meditative traditions really, wow, you really get people like angry and upset when you start talking like that you have desires and some desires are, 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 are in fact legitimate. Desire seems to be, in some people's minds, anathema to spirituality. Uh, now, the more you actually go deeper into the teachings, the more wrong that seems. Buddha himself made this distinction between righteous desires and non-righteous desires. Helpful, the Upanishads say praya and shreya, helpful desires and not helpful desires. Uh, and the, in the yoga tradition, satya kama, kama means desire, satya means truthful, elevated, um, and asatya, so the opposite of. So again, righteous and non-righteous. And in essence, the soul, uh, this fundamental teaching is the soul has these four core desires that it's like, you know, my first teacher was the one who really made me think along these lines. And, and, and he was, he was so, uh, such an, uh, kind of profound example of the possibility of stepping into right desire. So what does that mean? It, it fundamentally means that our soul has these four innate desires. So one is the desire, the big one, the umbrella one is the desire to fulfill your purpose. Mm-hmm. We each come here with a unique purpose. We have this capacity to fulfill that purpose. And 
unless we fulfill that purpose, we can't be happy. And that's maybe the essential teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, one of the core teachings of the scriptures of the yoga, of the yoga tradition, saying that unless you fulfill who you're meant to be, you can't be happy. And it even suggests that we struggle to fulfill our unique dharma rather than try and do the dharma of somebody else or someone else's dharma. Uh, it's better to do ours badly than someone else's well. Hmm. Um, and then from uh, a sense of fulfilling our purpose, and by the way, there's a twofold piece of that. And I, in just in brief, I would say number one purpose for all human beings is one, figure out how to stop suffering. Mm. Figure out how to stop suffering. We can, we can, if we get to know ourselves better, both on the side of the light and the side of the dark, indeed, that's the beginning. Number two part of purpose is not so much a, find the right career, but figure out what are the values you are values you are meant to express uh, through your relationships, through your work. And, and that is unique. I would say Da Vinci, for example, may have had a unique Dharma different than Einstein mm -hmm. for just to say, you know, two examples or different than Gandhi. And yet each and not only were they in different, you know, uh, life trajectories, but there was something unique about their gift, their ray, how they, how their uniqueness rayed out into the world. And every individual, I'm not saying we're all da Vinci's, but every individual has a unique ray. And we, it, ideally, we get clear about what that ray is. And that's really very much the heart of the, of the book, The Four Desires, my book, um, so that's number one, is that we do that. We find out what our unique ray is, we honor it, and we step into the, I don't want to call it the struggle, we step into the invitation to expand ourselves into that ray. Mm -hmm. That is what living the purpose is, that's what living your dharma is all about. Number two desire is having the means to accomplish that purpose. And that means money, it means health, it means some level of security. And then go a little bit further, it's all the tools that you use. So, Jacob, for example, you and I Skyping to, uh, to make this recording and this, this thing available to others, that's a tool that you or I are using. Um, and that, that word for all of those different aspects of the means to achieve our purpose is called arta. And then the third desire would be kama, which in this context means pleasure. And so uh, the pleasure of uh, sensuality and sexuality and friendship, beauty, art, music, whatever it is that gives us pleasure, gardening, dancing, making love. And I want to make the case, uh, even before I introduce the fourth one, that all four desires are given equal weight in the tradition. Mm. The, the ancient texts actually call out all four. There's a scripture called Manu, which is one of the great... Uh, dissertations on how we how we bring these teachings in the world. Manu is basically saying that the person who's only achieved one of the person who only fulfills one of the four is inadequate. Two of the four moderate. Three of the four superior, and four of the four. In other words, all you are living and achieving all four desires. You are the example for all human be all beings. So, what's the fourth desire? Is the desire maybe that. Um, is kind of the, the heart of what spiritual practice is all about, which is freedom and liberation and emancipation. Uh, it's the genesis of the seed of prayer and meditation, of yoga, of, of, of contemplation. 
And so imagine now just we'll step back from this in an ancient context and just say, look, what does all four look like? Wow. If I have freedom, spiritual, a a kind of spiritual richness in my life, I have some measure of pleasure. I have some measure of the means to accomplish the fourth or the first of the four, which was purpose. Man, we're talking about a complete life. Mm. And that teaching is so compelling to me not just in the yoga world, that people, again, our expectations are low. Well, as long as I'm surviving, as long as I have a little less stress, as long as I can maybe maybe sleep through the night, I got everything I need. And, and on deeper in, inspection, what we'll find is it's really when only these four are honored and fulfilled that we become who we we're meant to be. Mm. Yeah, I really love uh, I really love the uh, many of these ideas you bring up because it seems like um, what you're doing is drawing out really the life affirming um, principles of the tradition, um, especially with regards to means and pleasure. Because you know it seems like I don't know if you've encountered this, but I certainly have. Where you know yoga teachers or anybody who uh, practices yoga has this idea that they aren't supposed to make money, that like making money is a bad thing, yeah. and you know there's some kind of like uh, you know, Marxist kind of component <laughs> to it. Um, not to, you know, uh, denigrate Marx, who's certainly a brilliant man. Um, and then also pleasure, you know, pleasure is something that is also kind of, um, uh, uncomfortably held sometimes in, in, in some of our mindset, we think like, oh, we're supposed to kind of rise above pleasure or pleasure is of the flesh. And we, and we're trying to transcend that. And, 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 and so it cultivates a kind of, I don't know, self or life negating, uh, idea of what the practice is about. And you really seem to be, um, pushing against that in a way. I, I, I guess I am. And, and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not my main purpose, but indeed I've, I've found it there. And you know, the idea, first of all, um, my ability to actually enter into that dialogue and embrace those teachings and, and and develop the idea in the course and the book and all that. Really, that has to do with me being schooled in Tantra, yeah. which doesn't make that distinction uh, about, in fact, purposefully attempts to tear the wall down between spiritual fulfillment and worldly fulfillment. And, and so it is, in fact, couched in this core Tantric philosophy. And, you know, just to circle back to your point, not only does it create a judgment around those desires. It it inherently creates conflict. Yeah. So on the one hand, um, you know, uh, I have kids, I have children, for example, but any, any yoga teacher has, you know, children to start to deny your kids their desires simply because you think desire is counterintuitive or counterintuitive to their spiritual welfare. It's going to make for a very unhealthy child. Um, and then yoga teachers, for instance, just denying their own sexuality, denying or not denying it in the context of, oh, well, if I indulge and I make money or I embrace the idea of pleasure, I'm ultimately making spiritual fulfillment more difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and that breeds su- such a kind of uh, um, dichotomy within one's psyche yeah. um, that ultimately um, it, it really does ultimately lead to stagnation. And if, if not just um, like this profound conflicted self-image, mm-hmm. like uh, so, the beauty is that my my teachers completely discharge me of that idea, that notion, 
And the more you look at it, it's really interesting. You know, the Rig Veda being the oldest uh, spiritual scripture, essentially existent spiritual scripture on the planet, the thing ends asking us to, um, to walk together, to eat together, to celebrate one another in peace. Mm. And all of those profound rituals and teachings and some of the most esoteric uh, spiritual knowledge ever revealed. And where it ends is let's eat and walk and talk and be in peace. Wow. You know, so this is not, I'm not being iconoclastic. I'm not, I'm not a revolutionary. What I'm trying to do is in set, in fact, steep our modern, uh, our modern application of these ancient traditions in the actual wisdom. Let's walk together. Let's talk together. Let's eat together and share the bounty of life. That's actually where it ends. Mm. Share the bounty of life together Mm. in peace. That's amazing. So that's actually a good segue into um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, which uh, I hope you're going to be okay with, because uh, the the reason why I'm asking uh, this topic is because in one of your uh, talks, you mentioned that your least favorite topic is is, uh, yoga and politics. Um, And so I guess I wanted to start just by asking why that is. And then I and and then um, you know also in an in, in an election year like this you know and you're you're talking about at the end of Rigveda it's talking about walk together eat together and and you know celebrate yeah. each other um, uh, how is it hard to avoid conversations around the relationship between yoga and politics at, at a moment like this for you well, well until now I've done a very good job <laughs> well I apologize uh, for that you know my 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 distaste for that is, um, how do I put this? How do I put this nicely? Um, you know, the fact is that Republicans deserve to do yoga too. It should not be just the domain of liberalism totally. and people who are progressive in their, in their worldview. Yeah. Um, and, um, I'm also of the mind as radical as it may seem in this day and age, um, that Democrats are not always right and Republicans are not always wrong and totally. vice versa. Um, and, and then the other thing is, but going back to the, my first point is I still want, I still find in the end, if you ask me, um, you know, I, in the end, I'm a seeker and I try and really be a refuge for seekers as a teacher. I want to be a refuge for seekers. And I find that there's a certain bifurcation that has to happen that if you, if I become too political on a public level, yeah that I will become less of a refuge for all those who might benefit from, uh, from learning with me or from the teachings or really from the tradition I serve. Um, you know, things have gotten so extreme yeah. that, yeah, I am not apolitical on a personal level at all. Right. Let's put it that way. And I have strong feelings about it. I'm, 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 I consider myself very well-informed Um, and so, um, uh, I definitely have views, but I try, you know, it's interesting. My teacher, uh, Pandit Rajmani Tuganayat comes from, and I said that a little quickly, Pandit Rajmani Tuganayat comes from, uh, a lineage of, um, um, all the eldest sons in his family going back to the 15th century were all either royal priests or royal yogis, you know, they serve the Kings, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so he has, and, and he has two PhDs in philosophy and in Sanskrit studies, uh, Lahabad university in Penn state. 
And uh, when he became a disciple of his guru, his guru said, I will take you on as my student, but you have to promise me three things. You will not participate in religion, sectarian religion, politics, or astrology. And no, I, I know I'm all opening a big can of worms with that. But the point is that more than once I've wanted to get up on a soapbox and, and say something about it. Here's and, and, and kind of maybe lend my political view, throw it out there. But I really, again, I want to keep that gate open uh, as much as possible. I've had extensive conversations with different organizations that have been born out of the yoga world, but who have a political tilt. And I said, I can only participate if it's nonpartisan. Yeah. And like, so for instance, Citizen Well, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're an amazing organization that really began to want to tap into the consciousness that is being developed in those in the health, wellness, yoga world, meditation world, of which, you know, we spend billions of dollars and we probably, there are some common views, like it would be better if more of us were healthy. It'd be better if more of us were educated. It would be better if there was more social justice. It would be better. And so what are those things that we can find in common? Citizens Well, Citizen Well is focused on it. It's why I've lent my name and voice to their organization, and yet it's managed to stay bipartisan. And it's better if more people vote, for example, yeah. period. Just get involved. Um, so, so I've been tiptoeing this line pretty in, in, your, in trying to answer your question, but I have a feeling you want me to do something else. No, I don't. No, actually, I love the way that you're approaching it because that's sort of how I wanted to to address it is not by getting, you know, not going into a, 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 a predictable um, rant that might align with kind of democratic principles versus Republicans, which tends to be um, the position of most yogis, um, at least the ones that I come into contact with. But but I think that it's uh, that if we zoom out, you know, that's sort of what I wanted to 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 maybe address is kind of the narr- the kind of dualistic narrative of 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 partisanship and how and how that kind of that narrative is dividing us because it seems like if we are to take yoga philosophy seriously we would need to be walking a line something like what you're talking about where we're trying to um, have a nonpartisan conversation because if we are walking wanting to walk together eat together uh, you know we certainly can't be having this kind of good evil hero Absolutely. villain kind of um, storyline um, completely shaping our perception of things. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your point of view and you, you articulating that. And, um, you know, I, I think I think here's where I would say these practices are invaluable and where they come into play, where I would want them to come into play uh, more completely in, in this conversation, in this world. Number one is um, the calm and clear thinking that, that yoga is meant to provide. Again, it's another thing of why yoga needs to be more than just the text conversation I was having before class, the same text conversation I had after class. Maybe I'm just a little calmer. I find myself, I'm typing faster because my mind is less cluttered. Mm -hmm. But the point is that, um, you know, uh, everything from like Brexit is an amazing example of the overt emotionalism around what should be carefully considered rational decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think the more emotional, the more stirred up we get, it's not to say we don't want people passionate. We, don't, we want things to be important to people. Yeah. But to the extent that they cloud our thinking and we react emotionally instead of 
thoughtfully. And part of the emotionalism that concerns me is it will throw us to the extremes. Mm-hmm. This is when uh, liberal progressive activists become some of the angriest people on the planet. Totally. With the least amount of acceptance. You know, uh, uh, just a really quick anecdote. There's this uh, a restaurant here on the West Coast. It's San Francisco in L.A. And, and uh, uh, Cafe Gratitude, very popular vegan jaunt. Well, about a year ago, the vegan owners came out and admitted or acknowledged that they had shifted their diet. They were now raising their own cattle and they were eating beef. Well, they've gotten death threats for the last year from vegans. On on the other hand, you know, so I don't have to portray the other side of the equation, but the idea of that word, we we can also, the other other issue for me is when when our minds become uh, either over cluttered with information or we become overly swept up in emotionalism, we lose our capacity to nuance mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. And that's my biggest concern, frankly. Um, da Vinci, one of, my, one of my kind of non, uh, one of my non-yogic gurus, we'll say, um, he said that one of the keys to life was the ability to live with a dichotomy, contradiction. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, on the one side, we have Bernie people who absolutely won't vote for Hillary because there's – but there's no nuance there. There's no nuance in it. Yeah. Well, so um, – and and we have Republicans who are willing to throw their weight behind Trump, for example, because they don't have nuance. Yeah. Um, so I just think the, the, the guiding light of yoga is a calm – tranquil mind. That's the foundation of it. That's, as I said earlier, that's just the beginning. And yet, if we don't have that, what do we have in a political conversation or in ultimately um, how we survey, you know, the judgments we pass and in our own power of discernment about what is, uh, pow- what, is, uh, what is to our best advantages for me as an individual and for so- uh, society uh, and for the globe long, long, long into the future. So I do think yoga... It makes a it is important that we consider it. On the other hand, I'll just say this, and it may contradict what I said earlier, and that is, you can't completely separate yoga and politics, mm-hmm. because yoga, if nothing else, after it starts to quiet in the mind, awakens our conscience. And I'm not talking about good or bad, as informed by others, but rather the the the, the guiding wisdom of our own inner voice and our own inner truth. And yoga is really ultimately meant to awaken the voice of conscience and so that we best know how to respond to every moment. Now, the more, consci- the more our conscience is actually communicating to us and part of our, um, uh, our perspective, the more we have to give a damn about, you know, our, the decisions that will shape the environment, education, health women's rights, everything. All of those things, we're gonna, our, our, our voice of reason is going to begin to talk to us. So step, the, the third step after calm mind, awakening of conscience is you got to act on it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This has been so interesting and you've given so much rich um, insight into so many things. So thank you so much, Rod. We're at the end of our time as um, and as we close, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share where people can find you for those that are um, new to your teachings and anything that's coming up that you might want to share, workshops, retreats, teacher trainings. 
I appreciate that. Sure. So you had mentioned earlier in the show where we introduced me, um, people can find me at Parayoga. It's P-A-R-A-Y-O-G-A.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a bunch of offerings there from uh, uh, meditation offerings and things like that. I also teach on – I'm one of the featured teachers on Yoga Glow, which is uh, streamable yoga classes. I probably have 60, some of which are meditation, yoga nidra, probably more than 40 asana classes and they get a pretty broad sense of all of, uh, of those offerings and really how to use um, the wisdom of yoga, I would almost say scientifically, certainly methodically to create different effects. Mm-hmm. And then I'd also mention um, uh, this teacher training platform, which is um, about as comprehensive a teaching pre- uh, teacher training as there is. It's the, it's the it's the essence of and uh, the curriculum essentially that I was taught and now that I am trying to pass on to others. So that really is we can become as sophisticated as, as possible as, uh, as practitioners informed by Tantra and Ayurveda and yoga. And, um, uh, you know, people should stay tuned and, and stay in touch. And, uh, you know, what I say is, you know, keep practicing and keep evolving um, the main thing is find the practice that continues to help you expand and nurtures your your life in the world, but also nurtures your life as a seeker. Mm. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. All right, Rod. Thank it's you, Jacob. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been a real pre- pleasure, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again sometime soon. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. We'll speak again soon. Thanks again, Jacob. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rod Stryker. To learn more about Rod and his teachings, check out parayoga.com, P-A-R-A-yoga.com. And you can also find him on Yoga Glow at yogaglow.com. Until next time, friends, namaste.